Regan McMahon, a writer, editor, and book critic in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I'm talking with author Joseph DePrisco about his latest book, Sabella and Sabella. It's the story of a 26-year-old New Yorker named Sabella who starts her new job at a successful independent publishing house in San Francisco called Hard Rain Publishing. Before long, all sorts of crazy things start to happen involving its visionary founder and publisher, Myron Bean, his in-house staff, his eccentric authors, their wacky relatives, and a new author Myron is about to sign to a deal that would bankrupt him. It falls to young, snarky, ultra-smart, foul-mouthed Sabella to be the voice of reason in this zany crew. Joe is a prolific author of fiction, nonfiction, memoir, and poetry. In his recent linked memoirs, Subway to California and the Pope of Brooklyn, Joe explores his complex relationship with his father, who was a low-level mobster in Brooklyn before going on the lam and moving his family to Berkeley, California, when Joe was in grade school. In addition to being a writer, Joe is also the founding chair of the Simpson Family Literary Project, a collaboration of the University of California Berkeley English Department and the Lafayette Library and Learning Center Foundation. The Simpson Literary Prize of $50,000 is awarded yearly to a mid-career author of fiction. Okay, now we want to talk about Sabella and Sabella. Good morning, Regan. <laughs> Lovely to be with you today. Thanks so much. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about your book. First, we're going to play a little audio clip from the book so that you can get a feeling for uh, the voice of Sabella in the, you know, the kind of, in her personality, the kind of person she is. We'll listen to that now. And that's by Indigo Jackson of uh, Sorry to Bother You Thing. Oh, yeah. She's in that great movie. All right. Here's the audio clip. I didn't know to an immoral certainty what a junior editor was supposed to do. But I'd been doing my job for a while, at least when I wasn't answering the fucking phone. I assume I'd been doing whatever may have been the junior editor job. To me, it didn't seem all that different from what senior editors did. But I did it faster and cheaper and better. And as for all those senior editors sneaking off to yoga or spitting classes were concerned, more irritatingly, I was assured a job description would be on my desk day one. No such document appeared on that day or any other. But, to be fair, neither did a desk upon which it could materialize. Instead, I operated upon a sturdier-than-it-looked Lego-like construction of interlocking red and blue plastic milk crates. Myron saved a buck wherever and whenever he could. For stability's sake, my crates were propped against what seemed to be a bullet-riddled, pockmarked wall, which might have furnished clues as to the fate of my extinguished predecessors. It was also where somebody other than I would have plenty of space for graffiti or for tacking up precious photos of pet pugs and tabbies and significant others. I am pathetic when it comes to photos, but I am a champ when it comes to cultivating insignificant others. If I may continue. I was 26 already. I'd been planning to quit this job as soon as something better came along. But that's a lie. Not the part about quitting. That's true. But I was not 26. I was 25. I graduated from college at the ripe old age of 19. I skipped a bunch of grades on my magnificent journey through the precious deformative high school years. 
and it was trouble-free for me to be shuttled to the next higher class because I was always by far the tallest girl at an all-girls K-12 through school. I was also what the private school counselors labeled precocious. That insult was marginally better than others I heard. Lanktoid, dork, geek, tall tard. I think the counselors meant I had a ridiculous vocabulary from having started reading chapter books while briskly gestating in my sabbaticalized professorial mother's Guggenheimlich maneuver of a womb. Did they bestuff my mom with that fancy fellowship so she could have her very own baby subject, upon whom she could do her groundbreaking research? I have no understanding of smackademia. Who does? From that embryo-yo point forward, I kept reading anything and everything, figuring, why stop now? More than any other factor, the high school kept unging me up the food chain insofar as they needed a lanktar jizz face to play center on the basketball team ASAP because the rest of the girls who suited up resembled gnomes. All right. Now uh, let's get back to talking about this crazy book. No, if you insist. If you insist. <laughs> Where did you get the idea for this book, Joe? I know your first publisher was a small independent San Francisco publishing house founded by a visionary guy who turned out to have some financial trouble running his business. And that's precisely the setup for Sabella and Sabella. Is this a roman a clay or was that just a, uh, that setting just a jumping off point for your imagination? First of all, I can't pronounce French, but uh, I don't know if it is exactly... You know, I've been, when I think about my publishing, well, let's take a step back, publishing. There's a, uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding about the world of publishing. I know some people who aren't in the publishing world or the writer's world think it's a kind of a genteel profession. And of course, for many, for anybody on the inside, like you, Reagan, uh, you know that it, it's kind of a bare knuckles kind of business and uh, it's not for the faint of heart. Well, that's one thing. So yes, uh, I mean I've been, I've had big East Coast publishers and uh, boutique publishers and really tiny po poetry publishers, and uh, the independent publisher of uh, National Breath, uh, like Rare Bird, published lots, lots of my recent books, and there are lots of commonalities and, and lots of big differences. But what I what I can say is that for uh, for anybody listening about hoping to to get published. What matters more than anything, I think, for, for a writer is, first of all, to write. And I think when you're starting to write, at least this was my experience and what I read from lots of writers, is you can get hung up on the idea of being a writer. And that is, eh, I think it's more important to write. Uh, and there's a big difference. Uh, I think you want to think of your, your life and your work as, as a verb and not a noun. Okay, so all that, with all that background, my uh, book design editor, Herbert, read uh, Sabella and said, that's my autobiography. And I said, wait a second, I don't, I don't know. I didn't, that wasn't my intention to write anybody's autobiography. I heard a voice in my head, the Sabella person, and uh, you know, I've been writing it for years. I mean, I started it three books ago, and I kept working on it over, over time. And it's changed remarkably over the, to me, remarkably over the years. But what's always been consistent is this voice of Sabella. And 
and, and who she is, she's very tall. Uh, she's a jock. She's a basketball hoopster. She's a, a basketball junkie. She uh, and she she is incredibly well read. She's read more than I have, that's for sure. She has people think she has Tourette's, but she just has a foul mouth. And she uh, seems to me that you know she has this New York upbringing, West Side, East Side kind of thing comes to San Francisco, fish out of water. I've always been drawn to fish out of water characters and hermetically sealed societies, the way a publishing house is. I mean, I've written about, one of my novels took place in the afterlife, one of my novels took place in a religious order, one of my novels took place with a gambling team, uh, professional blackjack players around the world, another book about mobsters. So I'm, in a way, Sabella seems like a different kind of novel, but to me, novels are all about voice. It's all about narrator. And so this cross-gendering kind of narrator for me uh, was uh, just enticing. Uh, I couldn't, couldn't stop listening to her and couldn't stop finding the words for her to express her thoughts. Did you ever worry that it was too much inside baseball? It, as they say, you know, to, I mean, do you think readers are intrigued by what goes on behind the scenes, the whole world of book deals and big advances and the difference between the front list and the back list and the remaindered books and stuff like that? Well, that's the big challenge, of course, when you write about something like this or, or, or any sealed kind of society, is that you need to convey the illusion of, of, uh, of being in the, in the weeds. But and you hope you can you hope that whatever information you impart it's kind of interesting um, i mean it is interesting to be on the inside of a publishing house but it turns out that it's awful it's an awful lot like a mob it's awful lot like the church it's awful lot like 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 lots of societies uh the difference here is that people are on one level you know you're playing you're talking about gambling i mean every book is a gamble and fiction especially, when you're talking about the marketplace. Who gets the reviews, who gets the acclaim, who gets the prizes, who knows? There's no, if there's so many smart people in publishing, if there were a formula to understand, uh, to predict success, all these books would, every book would be a big success, but it doesn't happen that way. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, that was a challenge not to be too, too much inside baseball stuff, um, definitely. And that's why I loved writing about the basketball, because she, uh, I mean, every time she she speaks about basketball, it's I hope it's in a dramatic context that makes some sense. But it's about conflict. I mean, basketball is a beautiful game. It's teamwork. It's individual. There's, there's a, it's a ballet on the floor. It's it's physical as can be. And uh, so there's an important chapter in there about her playing in a pickup basketball game. But yeah, good question. Yeah. What made you decide to have your main character and narrator be a 26-year-old woman? I mean, what challenges did you face dwelling in a female voice and personality? And how different was it for you to, as a writer to wake up in the morning and hit the keyboard and be Sabella for the next few hours? It was fun. I mean, creating that character, I mean, fiction is about character. I know people think it's about plot, and, and there's a way in which that's true. But fiction's about character. Fiction's about narrative, and narrative the narrator is a character, and and that's the engine ultimately of of your fiction. So for me, it was really exciting and liberating. I've been writing about mobsters a lot over time, and this was a different voice. Uh, I've been writing about teachers and people in religious orders, 
And to hear her voice was just so liberating for me. And so the challenge was to be, you know, not mansplaining anywhere um, or, or not projecting my, my gendered observations of the world onto her. And, and if it's successful, uh, that's, I mean, that, I hope it's successful. Uh, so how, how do I know about millennials? Well, they're everywhere, right? We live in a millennial society. And it's sort of an extrapolation of my uh, experience teaching, taught for 20 years, middle school through college, and adults for that matter. So, I mean, I, I mean I've been hearing these voices, and one of the key things about being a teacher, of course, is to be able to listen. And that's the, I think that's the main responsibility of a teacher is to listen. And, and that's where it all begins in the, in, the, in the exchange you have with your students. And it has to begin with their, their questions. So those voices were in my head. The New York voice of Sabella was in my head. I, I, I left Brooklyn a long time ago, but does anybody ever really leave Brooklyn? <laughs> doesn't, doesn't seem like everybody's moving back now, right? Murderous yeah. row of authors there in Brooklyn. Everybody lives in Brooklyn. And Sabella has some good jokes about Brooklyn, and I think, I hope, and she has lots of wisecracks about her ex, who apparently lives in Brooklyn now. Anyway, so I don't know if that answers your question yeah. about the, the female. I mean, haven't you found that, that cross-gendering kind of narrators, from authors to narrators? I mean, it's all over the place. Uh, it's from the beginning of the English, of the novel written in English. It's always been about male authors and female narrators. Well, now it's going the other way. Now there are lots of female authors well, actually, in the 19th century, it began with uh, Emily Bronte, Charlotte Bronte, uh, George Eliot. I am really nattering here. You have to stop me. <laughs> okay, I'll stop you. Um, why did you decide that one of her characteristics would be that she swears constantly? What does that tell us about her? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I guess it, it just felt right uh, that she... Well, first of all, I mean, you've been in the publishing world. You know that it's not, as I said a second ago... It's not a very genteel business, mm -hmm. and uh, people uh, in editorial conferences, and you know, people can. It's uh, you know, it's. I'm not saying it's like the John Gotti Social Club, but uh, it, 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 it's it's a rough atmosphere. So that's one thing. So she kind of she kind of fits in there, but even even there, she's a little bit uh, to the extreme. Mm -hmm. I don't know. There's a New Yorker here. Uh, <laughs> That's that's what it is, and she's a jock. I mean, yeah. there's kind of uh, physicality to everything she says, and a kind of uh, uh, directness. Yeah, is it hard to portray someone who's super smart and tough without making her too mean or annoying? Do you think a lot of women in the workplace face that dilemma themselves? Well, now that's an interesting question right there, as pertaining to this novel, because uh, as you know, I mean, she has she has uh, some tensions with uh, her colleagues. And, and yes, yeah, she's so smart. She graduates from college pretty young. She skips a lot of grades. And yeah, she's read everything. And she's a kind of a know-it-all. But I mean, if, if she has, a, if she's rounded at all as a character, you would think that at some point she would begin to understand that and and to be able to understand how she's affecting other people. Fortunately for me, as the narrator, as the author. It didn't didn't matter too much because she was gonna rip it everywhere she could anyway. That's who she is. There are a lot of literary allusions in the book, what Sabella calls collusions. When something reminds her of a piece of literature, a line from a movie or a play, and then she subtly inserts it into her narration. 
For example, we see sly references to Moby Dick, The Godfather, Little Big Man, Glen Gary, Glen Ross. Is that the way you think as you go through the world, constantly seeing reminders of books and characters among the real life situations and people you encounter? Does this happen to all English majors? <laughs> well, this, re this very conversation reminds me of Interview with the Vampire, actually. So, uh, so yeah. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, it's funny. Here's, here's a little inside information. So early on, these collusions, now there's a word that's not in our common discourse these days, is it? <laughs> Illusion. Uh, there was no okay. There was no collusion in in this novel, but there was. So she hates the word illusion. She hates. I mean, she's an English major type, so she hates the word literary illusion or reference. She finds those very namby pamby. So she she has this. Oh, I'm gonna uh, collusion. That's that's it's, it's it's more active. It's more aggressive. So she uses that. Um, now, earlier drafts of this novel, what's what's Sabella's story? when she's telling the story, she she would put asterisks after uh, each literary collusion. And at, at some point, because uh, she loves the look of asterisks, they're kind of starry and beautiful. But that, but I had a very smart editor or three or four along the way, most of them female, as it turns out, almost all of them actually, said, no, we're not going to do it. We can't do that. That looks <laughs> too distracting. Can't do it. So, oh, okay. We had a little fight about it, and then I gave in. And I, and I feel better about it. So now the literary quotations are just everywhere. So the other, another thing that in the background of this novel, for a long time we had discussions about whether or not I should publish this novel under a pen name. And, and it was an intense discussion with the distributor, the publisher, and I, and I was... That was my. I thought, well, maybe you know, this is such a different novel from things I've done. Maybe, it, maybe it should be under a pen name. And finally, uh, the publisher Tyson Cornell uh, and and the distributor uh, PGW Ingram said, no, let's go for it. So, let the devil take the hindmost. There's an expression I can't remember what it means, but so that's where we are. So I, I can't even remember the proposed pen name that we had, but I'm kind of glad. That I think it's risky to to have taken uh, Sabella's point of view, being who I am and my my literary uh, uh, resume. But you know, all writing's a risk. It's it's an it's an outrageous thing to do to to write a novel. How the why do you think that anybody would read a story that you wrote? I don't know. It either works or it doesn't. And you hope you give pleasure. You hope it's entertaining. You hope that the story holds together. You hope that the character means more to the reader. So, and and for me, the big, in the, in the largest sense possible, this is this is a novel that's both a takedown of publishing and a love letter to publishing, mm -hmm. which means it's about the people involved. So Sabella has a very complicated relationship to the very eminent Myron Beam who's the president and CEO of this privately held company that has been immensely successful for reasons that the novel, I think, dramatizes, I hope dramatizes, a little bit mysterious. Mm -hmm. So. You know, so it's so funny, the whole, uh, the fact that not only um, did you not know when you're writing the book that when it would come out in, in August 2018 that we would have been hearing the word collusion in the news for the past year and a half, 
And you also couldn't have predicted that when when you chose to have a smart porn star play a pivotal role in the plot, that a smart porn star would be playing a pivotal role in our politics at this moment. Uh, how did you get the idea for that character, who's deliciously named Ashley Comingle? Were you making a point that anybody can make it in publishing, no matter their background, if the writing is good? Well, that's a very smart that's a very rational, smart explanation, and and uh, I could claim credit for it, but I would be wrong. I don't know. It was just, yeah. I mean, who knows who gets a book? Who gets who gets an audience? So the year there was a porn star that, and she goes to Berkeley actually as a graduate student after her porn star career is over, um, and she she becomes an increasingly important character as the novel goes along. I don't want to introduce any spoiler alerts here. But yeah, I mean, the, the national discourse, I don't know what it is. I mean, we live in a, and, and Sabella has a lot to say about porn. It's a, you know, the novel is not, uh, you know, my grandkids can't read this novel yet. Um, that's for sure. Uh, there's, yeah, there, Sabella has a lot to say about porn and about uh, male-female tensions and masculine and feminine, gender, sex, all this stuff is I think handled and I hope handled in terms of plot and character and not in terms of ideologies because I don't have an ideology about this. I don't have an ideology about anything as far <laughs> as I can tell. My only ideology is tell a story and tell its slant. You've got a, quite a collection of kooky characters in this novel. One of my favorites is Momechka, who speaks primarily in open-ended, wise, folkloric sayings like, a dog may blow a whistle, but he cannot call himself to the hunt. How did you come up with her? Well, once again, I don't know, but I know that there are eccentric characters all over the, the landscape of publishing houses. In fact, it's a requirement, I think, to, for their, to get the job in the first place. So Mermechka is a, an exotic character. She's a plus, plus, plus size, as Sabella says. She uh, dresses in pastel pup tents. And, uh, and Sabella, it becomes very clear, she's much smitten by Mermechka. Uh, and is, is entertained by these Vatic sayings, and which she cannot uh, understand, but they're sort of uh, entrancing to her. This, this puts her in contradistinction to other people in the publishing house, like her nemesis, Kelly, who is this gosh and golly, prettiest springtime uh, senior editor who takes an instant dislike to Sibella. And... Uh, and Sabella never lets her go for the entire novel. She has sort of a running conversation with, with uh, Kelly as the story goes along. And then there's the, the editor-in-chief, um, young Goodman Brown, who uh, is named that by Myron Beam after the Nathaniel Hawthorne character. And uh, I hope that gets clear what, what, why he's named that way, that moody 19th century puritanical world that he's in. Uh, and, and so Sabella and uh, YGB also have an intense uh, connection. So yeah, it's all about relationships in the publishing world. And, and Mermechka is, uh, is an important figure for her too. Uh, and, she, and she's right, they, they sort of sit adjacent to each other in the office. So where two people are together, there's drama. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you have a poetry collection coming out soon, too, right? Well, one came out last spring, right? Yeah, last March. Um, 
live poems coming out periodically here and there. Mm -hmm. But the last poetry select, uh, collection was uh, Sightlines from the Cheap Seats. Right. Rare Bird Books. And yeah, uh, I mean, I began as a poet, um, published my first book when I was in graduate school and uh, back in the day, back before email, as I like to say. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, and poetry, poetry, memoir, fiction, nonfiction. I could say that these different kinds of genres proceed from different quadrants of my brain, but that would be suggesting that I have a greater understanding of my own brain than I, than I have. I know that them in, in separate desk drawers or write them on different days of the week. I know people do that. I know that there are writers who have one desk for poetry and one desk for the, yeah. I mean, where I draw, I mean, I write poetry with a mechanical pencil and then but I write fiction right on my word processing computer, and and I don't write longhand. Although, so yeah, it's it, so there is a different connection. I mean, poetry is about music to me. Uh, it's all about music. It, it's closer to music than it is to anything. And fiction is about uh, conflict. It's about character, and the character in the poetry is kind of me. Uh, and memoir is different. Memoir is your, you have an obligation, responsibility to tell the truth as far as you know it. But even that, there, there, there are connections between memoir and poetry. I think they're actually closer than memoir and fiction. Yeah, memoir has, uh, you mentioned the two memoirs I wrote, which killed me to write. I felt like I was doing therapy on myself and wanted to send myself a bill at the end of every day. <laughs> uh, glad I did it, but so yeah, memoir is yeah, it's thematic. It's 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 it's, it's got a story, and it but it's truth telling. Fiction is different. Randall Jarrell said, uh, wise guy that he was, great poet, but he said a novel is a work of fiction of some length with which something is wrong. Okay, I would I think that's true. Sort of like what Henry James said too about the novel *Loose Baggy Monsters*. But I would say, a memoir is a piece of nonfiction of some length with which something is wrong with the author. <laughs> and so that, that that means me. So I mean, these these different modes, these kinds of genres. Uh, I mean, I guess for me, I've been practicing these genres for a long time, and they seem like. I mean, I've never. I've never, never thought, well, I'm writing a poem. No, this is not a poem. This is a novel. And this never happened to me. Although I found some poetry and, and fiction in my novels. Your two memoirs obviously took a lot of self-examination as well as a deep investigation of your dad and his motivations, sometimes with the help of FBI files and court transcripts. How did spending a couple of years probing that kind of loaded psychological territory affect you as a writer? Did it help you create and understand your characters? Well, what's interesting, yeah, that's a great question. I think so. I think that uh, when you're creating character, what's really boring in characterization is victim. Victims are tedious. No one wants to read about victims. So you, you want somebody who's got agency, who's got choices to make, who's got challenges to, uh, to surmount. What that means for the author I think is true both for fiction and and for memoir, is that characters only succeed 
for the reader if, if, the, if the writer grapples with the complexity of the human being or the character. So what, what's exasperating, what I found sort of amusing and, and, and sort of spiritually awakening is in the course of memoir, by writing the memoir, for instance, you see, you become much more sympathetic to the characters, even the one, and I've had lots of pretty complicated uh, antagonistic relationships with people in my, my world, um, lots of guys with many vowels in their names, everybody sort of a conf competition for money or for status. And what you find is that, uh, what I found anyway, was that you're more sympathetic to characters when you start writing about them. Uh, I, I mean, it's a, it's, it, it is a spiritual lesson, I think, to, to, to come to terms with your own limitations, your own, I mean, everybody's a hero to himself or herself until you start writing. And then you say, well, you know, that's, that's not, I'm not really, I mean, I have my own, I mean, no memoir is ever worth writing by a perfect person. And there are no perfect, perfect people. We only write out of our imperfections, our, our questions, our doubts. So yeah, yeah, I had a very complicated dad, uh, very complicated, um, and there's a lot of darkness in the family. And but writing about it, sort of, I, I could sort of, I became much more sympathetic to him, mm -hmm. his struggles, and I and I hope that I mean, that, that translates, of course, to to fiction, when you see that you know no one's really there are very few villains in the world everybody's trying to do the right thing they're just doing the wrong thing <laughs> um <clears throat> finally i want to ask you about the simpson prize um why did you think it was important to spotlight and boost mid-career authors who already had a couple of works of fiction under their belt as opposed to some of the other prizes that we know that are lifetime achievement awards or best book of the year, and here you're looking at somebody who's, um, you've determined is sort of in the middle of their career and they could use uh, more exposure or use the, the $50,000 cash prize to help them, you know, um, finish that novel that they're involved in or, or whatever. That's a good question. I get it all the time. Uh, when we conceived of the prize, and the prize is just one aspect of, of the project, we, we do writing workshops led by Simpson Fellows, who are graduate students at uh, the English department at Cal. We do these workshops at Contra Costa County Juvie, at Girls Inc. in downtown Oakland, Northgate High School in Walnut Creek. And next year, we're going to be expanding um, to, to, to more workshops as one thing. And then, we, and then the prize. And then Joyce Carol Oates is our writer in residence at the library in the winter spring. And all that's all that's supported by the fundraising that goes into the, the project. And this year, too, uh, coming out in a month or so, will be our first book, Simpsonistas, Tales from the Simpson Family Literary Project that I'm editing. And it'll have works by the Simpson Prize winners like Geronimo Johnson and Anthony Mara, Joyce Carol Oates is in it, Samantha Hunt. I mean, a whole slew of authors will be in there. Um, so those are the things we do. So why mid-career? Well, first of all, mid-career authors are, I mean, everything is all about emerging authors these days. And, and, and I think it's begun to be a little bit, not exactly a backlash, but, you know, response. I mean, emerging author, yeah, lots of, it's nice to be a young writer getting a whiting or something like that. Oh, that's great. 
I mean, I've won Young Poets Prize. It was a great thing to do. I, I loved it. Um, but, you know, the funny thing about authors is that you're always emerging. <laughs> and so, you know, here you are in mid-career. You've written a couple of books, a fiction of novels or short stories. And it happens to be, and talk about publishing inside, it, it, it's actually the hardest time to get a book published. It's, you, you haven't really, you haven't won the Capstone Award, like a Pulitzer or a National Book Award or a, a MacArthur. So that's where publishers, you know, eyebrows get raised. Maybe this is not somebody we can, this is not a horse we can ride. Now, so to me, we think, first of all, there's nothing like it, or very, there's only one thing kind of like it for a mid-career author. Um, but this this is, yeah, this is a chance for us to celebrate and to help somebody get to the next stage. And because this is one of the ironies here is even as it's harder to get published, it's actually when the writer is actually at his or her greatest power. Been through the, been through the rodeo a few times. And now, okay, here we are. Um, and so I think in the case of Geronimo Johnson, after Welcome to Braggsville and after Anthony Morrow, the star of Love and Techno, you know, these are, these are writers of great note. They have a, a tremendous future uh, in front of them. And we're just beginning the process, actually, any minute uh, for selecting the Simpson, the third Simpson Prize winner, uh, 2019. So, and, and as you know, I mean, there are lots of good writers uh, who are mid-career um, out there. And uh, we intend to we intend to, to, to celebrate them. And the finalists, by the way, we also uh, are able to highlight the other you know, the finalists, the ones who don't get the prize, but are championed uh, by 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 the Simpson committee and by the jury that selected them. Uh, so we're we're able to stay in relationship because these writers also go into residence. The prize winners go into residence at uh, Cal and at the Lafayette Library for a few weeks in, in the spring, working with kids, working with librarians and, uh, and the broader community, working with Joyce Carol Oates, who's the writer in residence, who's a very important member of the project committee, a great citizen, um, uh, someone who's been an inspiration to us all. Did I answer your question? Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um... It's very exciting. See, you're just like Sabella. You're just somebody who's hooked on books. <laughs> That's a title. Is that a title of an after-school program? Or something? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, so thanks. Like in your world, Regan, yeah. at, uh, at Common Sense Media. Yeah, right? yeah I'm the director at Common Sense Media, the nonprofit that helps kids and families and educators uh, navigate the world of, of uh, media and technology that kids dwell in. And, and you're also, I mean, you have a great track record of writing about kids and sports. You have yeah. a wonderful book, Revolution and the Bleachers. Yep. So, so you're a jock at heart. So when you read about Sabella and her basketball, did it ring true to you? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, I was I was an ice skater, so it was a little bit different because it's more of a solo sport than a team sport. But I also was on team sports in, in high school and stuff. But yeah, no, I thought I liked all that sports stuff. I thought it was, uh, you know, it's very well done. Great. Were you watching the Warriors while you were while you were typing that part <laughs> parts up? Yeah, I can't. I don't multitask very well. But yeah, I'm a Warrior fan. You know, we're hated. 
when I do radio interviews about Sabella, subject of the Warriors comes up. There's a lot of haters out there. And it's like, all I can say is I was a Warriors fan when they were the laughing stock of the NBA. I was, I was a season ticket holder when they were the laughing stock. So come on, give us a break. They are, you know, they're off the charts. They're just tremendous. And they're so, it's such a beautiful game when they play it. Yeah, true. All right. Well, on that note, I will say goodbye and good morning. And uh, I hope everybody can uh, get intrigued by this book because it's really, it's just a great read. And so uh, I hope people check it out. Well, thank you, Regan, very much. It's been great talking to you. You take care.